So this evening, I would like to talk a little around the theme of identity. But first, I wanted to, to look a little at one word which often comes, is common uh, in the Zen tradition, and this is a term of emptiness. And uh, sometimes one sits in meditation and one actually might have the impression to experience emptiness. And that can be done experienced in different ways. You might sit and then you feel yourself differently because in a way it's like your border are different. And so often then people think, oh, I am empty. But it's not that you are empty, or it's not that you are nobody, is you are experiencing your identity differently. And I think that's what is, is I think part of the, the path of meditation is starting to have a different relationship or a different way to identify. But often when you have this idea, for example, of emptiness, or the idea of selflessness, for example, it might give you the impression that the idea is to disappear, that possibly somewhere there is either this mystical emptiness, like a kind of a big black hole, or that at some point, I must not be here. Or I must not experience myself as being here. And often we think of emptiness as something quite special. But if we look at the experience we might have, sometimes either as you sit and you suddenly feel your body differently, you feel, you experience it differently. It doesn't mean you don't have a body. It doesn't mean you don't exist. It doesn't mean the body doesn't exist. It means that you are feeling differently about it. And that's what is interesting, because often we have a strong sense of identification. And often we identify with the body. But it's not like I identify with the body, it's more I identify with a feeling, with kind of like a, I have this kind of fixed, solid feeling about the body. It exists. And it's me. And then when you have this impression that it's not solid, it's not so solid, it's not so separate, then What's going on there? And I think, personally, the body is the same. <laughs> but the way we experience it is different. Because we are not fixing. We are not grasping. We are not holding. And so I would say this moment of emptiness is like moments where you experience yourself differently. Because I would say the moment of de-grasping releasing. 
And often we don't do it. It happens by itself. In the same way that sometimes you can go inside the, the pain, inside the discomfort, and you go inside the sensation. And it's not my sensation, my me anymore. It's just like a sensation happening in that part of the body. And it's a very different experience. And so I feel that's what we're doing is that actually it's not that we are looking for emptiness, for a special emptiness, but possibly we are dissolving a certain way we feel, a certain way we relate, a certain way we experience ourselves when we grasp. Because I think this is something we can explore as we sit. I mean, today I had a an interesting experience. So by the third sitting in the, mo in the morning, the third sitting, I was sitting there and I did not feel very comfortable. My back, my up, oh, it was a bit painful and I was like, you know, it felt a bit painful. And I could see actually identification happening that you know, my back, my pain, maybe I'm getting too old for this. And then I could see, I could go, you know, I'm getting too old for this. Maybe I cannot teach Zen retreat anymore. Maybe we should stop teaching the Zen retreat. And I could see it was interesting because, you know, 10 minutes before, I had not had this kind of thought. But suddenly, it's like there was this grasping, this identifying with the pain. And then generally, you can do lots of things with that. That's what is interesting. As soon as we grasp, we identify, we can really go easily in proliferation. So, I mean, there is an experience of unpleasant sensation, basically. And so instead of going in, you know, like deciding, you know, I'm not teaching then anymore or whatever, I, in a way, went back to my, I would say, my two mantras, which is, let's see what happens. And how long is this going to last? And so I came back without preconceived notion at 2.30. And I sat, and it was so different. Suddenly, I was feeling extremely differently. Then the, the identity was very spacious, very wide, very present. Instead of just being stuck to just a few sensations appear, it was like the identity was as big as that. And there was this wide space. And so in a way, we are not trying to disappear. But I think what we can do during this week is explore. When am I actually reducing my identity and proliferating through it? And how does that feel? And how does it feel when suddenly 
the identity seems to be much wider, much more open. In, um, when I was in Australia, I was teaching in Australia, and just at the beginning, uh, I was going to do a, a day-long meditation with 70 people. At 10, I was supposed to start at 10, and then at 8, I, uh, I was attacked by a cup. You know, things like that happen. So, and it's like the cup slashed my finger, and so it was quite uh, bloody, and I needed stitches and things like that. But I had to teach, so we structured. I did the day. And then in the late afternoon, we found somebody, a doctor, who could stitch me up. And I was hoping for, you know, some kind of modern stitches. You know, like they must have a new modern stuff, you know, they chak, 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 and it, you don't feel any pain, and it's really neat and everything. And then he took his uh, needle, and he had the black thread, and, I, and he had, you know, and I was thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> and what was interesting, what was I pro preoccupied with was, I'm not sure I can stay Zen. You know, I must be Zen. I am a Zen teacher. I must be Zen. <laughs> And I'm, I'm thought, I was thinking, like, if he does not use anesthetic, can I be Zen with him, you know, sewing my finger? <laughs> and then very luckily, he did straight away anesthetic, and then he did the stitches. And so I could stay very Zen. <laughs> but I thought that was interesting. Because sometimes we identify we measure according to an ideal notion. I am a Zen teacher, I must be Zen. I am like this, I must be like that. So no, it's also noticing where, because the, what is the identity? What is the identity based upon? The identity is just based <coughs> upon the conditions that forms it. This was the main, basically, uh, insight of the Buddha. That the self, the identity, was just based on the condition that forms it. And so it was like the inner condition meeting the outer condition. And from that arose identity. And so because the conditions are a little fluctuating, that our identity is going to also fluctuate. And so, of course, this is not so pleasant in a way. We like to have an identity which is fixed, which is solid. Or so it seems that's what we like to do. Because often that's what I think when we look at identity, we're not trying to dissolve identity. We need to feel an identity. As the Buddha said, we need to feel a wise, compassionate identity. But I think in order to develop what I would call a creative, functional identity, we need to see what goes on, on what it's based, our sense of identity. 
And also, how do we feel that identity? Is it we have some abstract idea of how I should be? I should be a good meditator, or I should be this or that. Because sometimes it's interesting, either we base our identity on something that is there, and sometimes we base our identity on what we don't have. This is strange. I mean, to base it on something that's there, fair enough, but on something that's not there. That because you don't have this, that's your identity. I don't have a house, I don't have a partner, I don't have a job, I don't have children, I don't have creativity, I mean, whatever it is. And that's interesting to see. That sometimes we base it on something not being there. Instead of looking, what are the different things that constitute it? And to me, this is in a way the path of awareness, a path of creative awareness, what we do here is to see that our identity is, is composed of so many different things. And then, if we see the potential of these different things coming together, it could be, become really creative. But often, we might even base our identity on a past event. Something happened in the past, and that's what we are or something must happen in the future, and that's what we are. Instead of, we are so many different things. This morning I was a, a stuck Zen teacher. This afternoon I'm a very spacious Zen teacher. <laughs> it shifts. And so, I think what we can see, possibly during the retreat as we see it, you see, I think, to see that the aim is not just to be quiet and clear, but in a way to see what stops us from being quiet and clear. And that's generally where the identity goes. And I think it's as important to be quiet and clear as to see, oh, I am stuck there. That's what I base my identity on. And in that way, you can see the story you tell yourself. You're sitting in meditation, and suddenly you see yourself in this story. But do I want to be that story? And, and, to, and I think this is to see that often what happens, and that's what is so painful, we reduce our identity to one thing of a very small thing like a train of thought, like certain feeling we might have, certain sensation we might have, certain problem, difficulty we might have. And if we reduce all we can be in that, this is so painful. And so what is interesting here that at times you might have that spacious feeling of identity. And what is interesting with when you feel really this spacious sense is that actually there is nothing 
solid and fixed. And you realize you don't need something solid and fixed. You can just be here, formed by these conditions which are meeting outer conditions. And what is interesting when we have this more spacious sense of identity, then at the same time, we're more aware of the world. We're more aware that the world also participates in our sense of identity without defining it, without defining ourselves. And then it becomes more like a function. The identity is not like a label which restricts us, but it's a function. And it's like emptiness. If you think emptiness is a thing, then it's problematic. But to see that emptiness is a function. So for example, this glass is empty. And because it's empty, I can put water in it. And I can drink from it. And so that's the function. Emptiness is a function in the glass. It's the same with the stick. Why is a stick working? Because there is a bit of emptiness in the middle. If there was no emptiness, nothing happened. If there is some emptiness, something happened. So that's a function. And then that's where the thing can be creative and changing. You can put different level of water, different type of water in the glass. And so to see that we don't, sometimes when we do meditation retreat, we might have experiences where either we feel empty, or we feel spacious, or we feel quiet and clear. And then we might go into our daily life, and we might want to feel that way as we go about our daily life. But I think to feel exactly like we feel here, I think would be difficult. Because we feel like this here, because there is very certain narrow circumstances. We don't have responsibility, there is no agitation, there is a schedule, we are in silence, etc. But could not we have, you know, we bring what we have here in a different way in our daily life, in noticing how we are with others, how we move through the world, do we move through the world in a way where the identity is fixed? And where we meet fixed identity? Because in the same way that we can fix and redefine and reduce our identity, we can also do the same for other people. And I think this is in, a way, in the same way that we can make us very fixed, instead of seeing that we change. And back to the mantra, how long is this going to last? Let's see what happens. Instead of fixing beforehand, or fixing now, 
or even fixing oneself in the past. But we might do exactly the same with others. We might see someone and we might reduce them to one quality. They're intelligent, they're not intelligent, they're creative, they're not creative, they're friendly, they're not friendly. And generally we have a tendency to then assume they're always like this. But then they might have been friendly or unfriendly at some point because of certain circumstances. It doesn't mean that they will be always like this, even if they have the tendency to be so. To me, in a way, at the moment, I uh, live in the same house with my mother. I live upstairs, she lives downstairs. And so I try to help out a little because she's kind of uh, losing her memory. And to me, what is interesting is actually to learn not to identify at any given point that she's a type of person who has this type of memory, loss or not. Like sometime, I can take her to the town, she goes to see a show, she comes back, and half an hour later she, t she asks me, but what did I do this afternoon? So I have to remind her what happened and then she can retrieve a bit of what happened. So like, Half an hour she forgets, it's gone, unless I help her to retrieve it. And then I could assume, oh, she's somebody who will not even remember 30 minutes from now. And I should act in that way. But actually all the time she can remember a full day, she can remember a head, etc., etc. So if I were to fix her, she's like this. She will always be like this. Then actually, I don't give her any creative potential. And I think this is also what we have to look at ourselves. I feel like this now. It doesn't mean that I will feel exactly like this later. But if we fix ourselves like that, in a way, we're more likely to go that way. And that's what the Buddha was saying, that it's so easy to fix our identity and also to fix the identity of others. And so in a way, we need to have enough stability, enough continuity. So the fact that things are impermanent, I mean, this is one of the very important things in Vipassana, in questioning, but also in questioning to become a, to experience that things change. But things change, but within the change, there is a certain constancy. So it doesn't mean it changes every second. In some way it does, but in some other way it does not. Like tomorrow, I doubt I will become a wombat. <laughs> I love wombat, but I don't think I'll become one. But I could, you know, cut my finger, break my leg, and that would be 
a discontinuity. So I think we have to see the identity. I think what we're also doing with the retreat, with the meditation in terms of the identity, is actually forming a basis of identity which is different, which is less abstract, which is less defined in terms of this is like this, this is like that. But I would say it's more incorporated and incorporated within the environment. So it's more stable at one level, but it's also looser at another level. And looser can mean that it's more fluid, it's more adaptable. And I think it's interesting to see, like, uh, before I came here, uh, we started on a Wednesday here, and I left on Tuesday afternoon. And Tuesday morning was non-stop, because I had to do everything before going. So I take my mother to go and buy uh, some wine, then I had to take my, to shopping, then I had to go to the garden center to get some flowers, so then I could and it, for me, what was interesting, one moment I was a doctor, next moment I was a shopper, next moment I was a gardener, next moment... But I think if we have a stable and open identity, then we can flow. Instead of, I am the gardener, and I must keep in gardening mode, which means I must keep worrying about it, thinking about it, or do I just do it, and this is it? Or do I help my mother? Or do I need to keep worrying about it, thinking about it? Because I think what is interesting in terms of our work, when we work, can we be within the work? Just working, whatever we do, this is something you can play around. Like, you know, you are the cutter, you are the veggie cutter. So, I mean, do you identify, I must be the best veggie cutter Gaia house has ever seen? Or I must be the most careful, you know, like, you know, one centimeter and it does not work. And everybody is waiting for the carrots. And so it's kind of, how do I approach? Oh, I don't care. Or do I care too much? Because, you see, you can identify in non-identifying. I can do it, but that's not my thing. Or I must do it, but I must be the best at this. And how then it tends you up. Or can I do the best I can in this moment within the conditions and do it when I do it and leave it? Or are you still, when you sit in meditation, thinking, about the carrot cutting? <laughs> are you still thinking about the bathroom? What are these people doing in the bathroom when I try to wash the bathroom? You know, I told them not to come. You know? Are they still going to come tomorrow? Do I have to put a bigger note? So in a way, what do we do? You see, we, we have relationship, we have work. And of course, 
work will be on our mind, relationship will be on our mind. But to what extent? This is that to see, do you want to have actually what I would nearly call a too complicated identity, where you have everything, you keep everything, the work, the relationship, all the time. And it's not possible. You cannot keep all this all the time. So then how can I be really with what is going on, the person, the job, myself, in such a way that I'm really there, but without grasping, without holding, without reducing. And that's what I think we can see as we sit in meditation, walk in meditation, go about the day here. We, we are not rushed. And so we can really notice, but not in a worried way, I must not identify, I must not like that, but more, hey, do I feel a little constricted? Do I feel a little tense? Or do I feel more fluid, more open? And what happens? To me, that's what is part of the vipassana, part of the questioning. It's kind of looking, feeling, experiencing. What happens when I have this thought, when I have this feeling, when I have this sensation? When you're sitting at the table and you're all eating in silence, do you feel awkward? And then it's very interesting because you see, you have identity, you can have a stable, open sense of identity, or you can feel self-conscious. And this is something which can happen with mindfulness. Nowadays there is a lot of talk of mindfulness. I must be mindful. I must be mindful. But often, the mindfulness turns into self-consciousness. And this is a, sometimes it happens when you eat, you all, especially if it's rain, then you're all eating at the table and there is not much space and try to eat silently and, you know, am I chewing and am I, did I eat too much or eat too very little and, you know, are you comparing? Are you, what are you doing? You know, are you... That, it's interesting when we feel self-conscious. Are they looking at me? Are they not looking at me? <laughs> I want them to look at me. Huh? It's kind of like, you know, sometimes you are with people, they're talking, and they're talking here, and you would like to join them. You know, and you're so self-conscious that you're not talking to them. And then you go in the group, and then you kind of accept it in the group, and then you're not self-conscious anymore. Or then you might be self-conscious about saying the right thing, saying the clever thing. I mean, nowadays, I've just read something about Twitter. There is somebody who is a specialist of Twitter, and so he, tw he tweets for you. You know, he tweets for you. And then through t tweeting for you, he gives you an identity. A nice Twitter identity. And so you have to be short, you have to be fun. This is the thing, you know, Twitter identity. You must not be too serious. You must be humorous. So you kind of provide humor for your Twitter identity. And so that was interesting. You know, you need to have a, 
a different Twitter identity or whatever it is. So in a way, what is it we assume, we want? And sometimes we feel we want to have a kind of like a surgery, an identity surgery. If only I could have that person identity, then I would be happy. But we don't know how they feel within themselves. We have no idea. And so it's really, in a way, to discover. To me, this is what it, this is about, this emptiness. is actually discovering the creative potential of the identity. It's actually discovering all the conditions that can form, that can create this identity and how it is in relation with the world. And that's why I wanted also to look a little at selflessness. So there is this term we sometimes hear here, selflessness. And so when we hear this word, selflessness, generally we feel, ooh, I'm not sure about that. Selflessness. Like it's like, you know, there is no self, there is nobody, there is. But what does it mean, selflessness? I think, I think the term is a bit problematic. I think basically it means that we are not so self-centered. And so I think it's more in terms of percentage to see that sometimes we are so self-centered we cannot think about anything else. I remember many years ago I was in great, great pain. And so everybody wanted to be compassionate to me, and so they would come, and they wanted to talk to me and help me and everything. And it was very nice, but I really, it was so painful. I could, I could barely bear people coming, because I could not do anything else but be with the pain and try to manage the pain. And every, anything else was like, ooh, I can't deal with it. And then I really could see the, 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 the self-centeredness being like it, everything was reduced to this painful self. And then things improved, etc., etc. But it was interesting to see that, how when there is pain, often that's one way that we can really, the self kind of aggregate around. And so, of course, in those instances, I think it's really natural. And we have to see that actually, in terms of this identity, in terms of this selflessness, there is a whole range. Sometimes we have to be more centered about ourselves. Sometimes we can be more centered, open to others. And then sometimes we are in the middle. But this doesn't mean we, go, we have to disappear in the other. Because often I think that's the idea selflessness. You have to disappear for the other. But I think that's not what it is. Is that if the self-centeredness go down, let's say to 50%, from 95% to 50%, then actually there is a lot of space to see the other. 
And I think that's what it is about. It's not that we must disappear. It's not that we must have no identity. It's that through the, the in a way, the dissolution of that fixation, of that reduction. Because I think the problem with the self-centeredness is that it's really like a screen. It's a screen which stops us from seeing others, from seeing other conditions that impact on me, that can nurture me, that can, is important. It's like we're locked in a dark room, in a way. So if that goes down, then the view becomes much clearer. And then we can see, oh yeah, I exist in the world, with the world. And that's why I would connect, in a way, selflessness, emptiness, with the possibility for love, the possibility for compassion. Because if you are less locked in yourself, then you will be more open to others. And if you see others, you can love them, you can appreciate them. You can have compassion for their suffering. Because if they suffer, you can know, like myself, because when we suffer, how do we feel? When we suffer, we feel it's painful, but it's isolating. Nobody can experience my pain for me. And I cannot experience somebody else's pain. I can have empathy, but I cannot feel it for them. And so if we see that, this pain, this isolation, then when somebody is in pain, we know that. And we can have this empathic compassion. And so to see that actually all the work we're doing here is not just for ourselves, but is in a way to help us to develop a more stable, open, creative sense of self, sense of identity. So we can see the other in a different way. We can connect with others in a different way. Because often, also, with identity, we can have our identity and then it's kind of like our identity moves toward the other. And so we see the other, but through our identity. Instead of seeing the other in his or her identity. And for me, this is one of the great gifts of meditation. To learn to see where I am, what is my identity, the different condition that forms it, and to see that the other is there. Yes, we are similar in some ways, but very different in others. And so because, you see, if you put your identity on the other, then actually you fix them with your identity or your assumption. I mean, one easy way we do it is to say, I would never do that. <laughs> How can they do this? I would never do it. But they might say to you, I would never do that. You see, it's to see we have different 
way of being. And so some are more skillful, some are unskillful. And we are at different times skillful and unskillful. And so to me, that is also in relationship to the other. One gift is to give them their identity. And through that actually discover, instead of seeing everything through my identity, through my own eye, then I discover the identity of the other. And then it becomes this wonderful, because you discover the different way people are. I mean, yours is not bad, but it's, I mean, it's a bit limited. You're just one person. When there are so many people, sometimes when I'm in gathering, often I just spend some time with one person, and then just to interested in their life, the way they see the world, which often is very different. They have very different experience, very different history. Instead of wanting them to listen to my story, I mean, they can, but I think it's also one discover. And I think it opens up. I think it's very important to see that it's not just that identity of that person that opens up. But when we see the other identity, it opens up our own feeling of identity. Because it shows different potential for life, different creativity. doesn't mean that I have to have that creativity, but it opens me to a wider perspective, which I think is very essential. So, that's what I wanted to say. Today, are there any questions or comments? Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is a question, Martin. It's a, it's a kind of a comment uh, for like identity. Um, sometimes when I see a, something or a person in a way that I've never seen before, something shifts and the person is no longer as I've seen her before. Right? I'll give you an example. Um, this is a person I spend a lot of time with. She was my wife for 60 years, and we had two children together. <clears throat> so really I'm saying that this is a person I know so much about information. And one particular afternoon, um, we were just having something to drink. Uh, I don't drink myself, she wanted to have a shandy. And suddenly I looked at her, and the, the only thing I can say is that I saw her eyes in a way that I've never seen before. And since then, something has shifted. I no longer see her even as my ex-wife, if it makes any sense. She's become a person. Exactly. I think this, this is a very actually profound moment. And I think, to me, this is something which happened actually through the practice, but through opening to the other. Because I had the same experience with my mother when I, uh, after I saw my father die, I really saw impermanence in that moment. I really understood what my teacher said, that any person, their life rests upon one breath. And then I looked at my mother that way, and then instead of seeing my mother, I have this long history with her, suddenly I saw a human being. And then, then I see a human being in the moment, not the past human being. 
And then it totally shifts the way you are with the person. Because from then on, yes, I have this story, it's my mother, but I see her more as a human being than the story, than the idea. And I think then it's very beautiful because then you can really, again and again, each person, person at the supermarket, anywhere, you can actually see more the person than the idea you have about the person or the history you have with the person. Exactly. Um, because the mind is so accustomed to making identities, it does it very quickly. How do you catch yourself making these identities? I think it's... I think it's over time. That's the very much the development of the awareness. <coughs> That's why we're seeing that, yes, in a way we come back to the anchor, but at the same time, we don't come back to the anchor in opposition to the thought. But the moment of coming back is also the moment we can look, in a way, what was I thinking? And I think this is part of the, the meditation process, is as by coming back, we slow a little bit the mind. And by slowing it a little bit, then we can see more clearly, oh, here, I was actually, you know, having going on with that identity, with that story, defining me in that way, or I was going in this way. And so I think it's kind of, with the thought, for example, it's really seeing what am I thinking? Because a lot of the time we think it, and we are it, without really knowing it, although it really influences us. And I think this is part of the meditation process to become aware, not in a, how do you say, negative way or self-conscious way, but more in an exploratory way of what was I thinking? Where was I? And so just to see, oh, that story, that tendency, the way, like some, sometimes we can identify as somebody who organize. I used to identify a lot. I organize. I'm a good organizer. I like to organize. And so I would find myself, you know, planning a lot, organizing a lot. And then that gave me, you know, a lot of identity. Until somebody accused me to be too organizational. You know, and they were fed up with it. And that was very helpful. Because then I thought, wait a minute. It's good to know how to organize, but you don't need to become the organizer for everybody all the time. Because that's really a kind of reducing your identity and bothering other people too. And then it's to notice, oh, that's it. When is it I organize? How do I organize? When is it skillful? When is it unskillful? So it's kind of seeing what goes on? To me, this is the first thing to see in terms of identity is to see the experience. See, what is it I'm thinking? What is it I'm feeling? What is it, what are my sensations? And how am I reacting to them? Am I just staying with the experience? And then there is generally less identification. 
or am I proliferating? This generally is a sign of identification, is when you proliferate, you go into abstraction, you kind of, you go from one thing and suddenly you, you know, like me with, I had pain in my shoulders and, you know, I should stop being a Zen teacher. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, from the pain you suddenly go to kind of some story, you know, and then, then you see the identity, what happened there. So it's kind of really, that's why I think we're developing the creative awareness so that we can see it in action and we become less stuck to it. Partly by releasing through the meditation, but I think partly by also seeing what is useful, what is not useful. Yes? It's, it's my observation that uh, identity is not just a psychological condition. It also has um, physical you know, attributes, habits, structural habits, a lifetime of them. And if you wish to unravel your identity to any degree, you may have to unravel the habits and the structure too. And that's, personally, that's what I find very difficult. You see, I think, again, what we have to see is that we're not going for 0%. We're going for 50%. I think it's very important to see. We go from the middle, the middle way. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree. I would say it's easier to have an experience of emptiness than to, to dissolve a habit you have built for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Definitely. And that's why it becomes interesting to see that, yes, you have a tendency to do certain things, which kind of becomes part of your identity, but you don't do it all the time. This is, I think, in a way also the gift of impermanence, to see that, yes, we might have a tendency to organize, to plan, to be anxious, to be fearful, to do this, that, and another. But we don't do it all the time. And I think part of the exploration is to see when do I do it? How do I experience it? And then in the whole body and mind complex. And what happens? What are the trigger? What is the condition? What are the contributing factors? So in a way, it's kind of, again, it's kind of seeing the wider perspective instead of, I am like this. And it's true that, you know, you do some meditation and then you find yourself not changing or not changing as fast as you want to change. But I think what's happening here is that what changes is not the habit per se, but is the length and the intensity of the habit. I think some habits can go, they can disappear, if we can really see through them, some. But some, I would agree with you, are actually nearly physiological. And when they are kind of physiological, temperamental, then I think we want this is not an eradication program. But it's more 
understanding the habit, understanding the condition of the habit, in such a way that actually what will diminish is the intensity and the length. And I think, you know, if one was angry for a week and you're just angry for a day, I would say it's a great improvement. <laughs> or if you're angry for f five seconds. I think that is important to see that, yes, I totally agree, it's all, a lot of the identity is in the habit we form over time. And part of them are survival mechanisms, part of them are temperamental, part of them, I would say, the hardest to go, and the one which I don't think necessarily has to go, is cultural. Cultural is very physiological. And when I was in Korea, I could really see this. Like, uh, they, in Korea we used to, now it's modern, but then you used to wash clothes by hand. And then you used to wring it by hand. And whenever I wring clothes the French way, they would say, uh-uh-uh, that's not the way to do it. And then they would tell me to do it this way, like you had to do something like, I don't know what. <laughs> and what was interesting for me that I could not do it. I realized it was not the right way to do it, but the French way to do it, but it was so ingrained physically to do it that way that I could not do it the way they did it. And to me, that was fascinating to see that kind of like, physiological, cultural identity. But through living in Korea, I could see, oh, it's not my identity. It's just part of the culture. Yes. Um, say, say you're um, completely I would describe my sense of identity being quite diffuse and easily lost in others. So, is there a case of then sort of building up from the 15% rather than reducing down? <laughs> because I feel like that's what I'm trying to do, putting you know, into the context of what you said my experiences so far. I'm trying to build my identity, desperately trying to build different identities, and they all don't, don't feel very real. You see, this is, this is a thing. You can go either way. You know, it's a very good point. Because you can be, in a way, too self-centered, or you can be too other-centered, or you can sometimes not feel enough stability in the identity. And so I would see then one of the important parts about building then a, a stable sense of identity. So, because one thing we also do with identity is the identity is in the eyes of others. That's, that's a very dangerous one. If your identity resides in the way people look at you, think about you, because that's very kind of, you know, temperamental, one could say. And so, so one can also do that, but also sometimes we kind of have a, kind of like a, a little vague, diffuse sense of identity. And I think what meditation then can help is actually very much with, um, then I would use more the Vipassana tradition uh, with the Brahma Vihara, with loving kindness, compassion, rejoicing, and equanimity. And actually through that, building a sense of our qualities. Because I think when it's diffused, one thing to make it fused, but in a way which is skillful, is bringing 
feeling, remembering, experiencing our good quality, like loving kindness, compassion, wisdom, joy, equanimity. And then if we feel this regularly, then actually we feel more confident. And personally, I would say the meditation helps us to become more confident in a stable way, in a creative way. Because so often we also have a negative sense of identity. And I know for myself, I had quite a kind of a negative sense of identity when I started. And it was interesting to see even doing not the Brahma Vihara, but the, just the questioning. But I think it's just again, you see, you can attach to a negative sense of identity, or you can attach to an arrogant sense of identity. And both are going to be painful up to a point. And I think when we do the practice of meditation, we're actually dissolving either one. And then one of the important parts is what I was talking about the other day, stability. It's through the meditation becoming more stable. And we more stable, more confident, more aware. And then through the creative awareness, being more aware of what is my good quality, what is my difficult quality. Instead of, in a way, um, depending on others to tell us what is our good quality, what is our, our difficult quality. Because sometimes I think that's what we can do. We're kind of waiting for signal from outside to tell us about ourselves. And I think through the creative awareness, we become ourselves aware of that. And through that, then we can have confidence in it. If I know my good qualities, actually I can cultivate them, develop them. If I know my difficult quality by myself, I can look at the condition that seems to make it worse, make it better. Yeah, this is a good point. So maybe we'll stop here and then we'll have a little walking before the final sitting.